0: Episode 87 What happens on the ice doesn't necessarily stay on the ice. Someone said to me recently, I think so-and-so's asexual. Do you want to know how I know? To which I responded, Nope. Not interested in the alleged fact or the deduction behind it. The only reason I would ever be interested in that granular a perspective on the life of another person if I wanted to fuck them, and given that I'm happy with monogamy in my marriage, I don't. Even if I did want to fuck the person in question, I would ask them about their willingness to have sex with me specifically, rather than rely on the playground triangulations likely on offer from my companion to assess my chances. My acquaintance went ahead and told me about the deductive process anyway, and I started writing the script for this episode in my head to drown out the resulting bladder. Antarctica, because of its geographic isolation, and later because local atmospheric conditions mess with high-frequency radio signals from the far south, was considered by generations before my own as hermetically sealed in a social context. People held an expectation that anything a person did that was unusual or out of character would not impact on their life at home. The idea that what happens on the ice stays on the ice carries forward in the minds of some present-day Antarcticans, but now that aviation spans the oceans between Antarctica and South America, the Falkland Islands, Australia, New Zealand and South Africa, and satellite phone and internet connections offer similar levels of communication as is available almost anywhere else on the planet, the tacit buffer layer preventing Antarctic antics from impacting on the outside world, and vice versa, is no longer on offer to those working on the ice. This was brought home to me in late 2005 when, in my last week at Scott Base for that season, I received a phone call from one of my sisters telling me our father experienced a heart attack. He was in hospital recovering from an operation to insert a stent in an artery and was going to be okay, but he'd been given a fairly big scare. Reassurances that he was alive and likely to make a full recovery did little to allay my distress and I experienced an incredibly strong desire to head straight home. Of course, no amount of wanting to go home could change the circumstance. The flight schedule was what it was, and work remained to be done, so I carried on with my tasks, took my Herc flight to Christchurch when my number came up, and shot across the Tasman as quickly as my money allowed. While I couldn't get moving and return to the outside world, the outside world could reach into Antarctica and affect me to a larger extent than I'd previously acknowledged. Where a distress signal from the ice might take a year to reach anyone capable of responding to it a century ago, high-frequency radio and now satellite phone and internet access offer communication reach and speeds comparable to anywhere else. Bandwidth can still be an issue, but voice and text communication is even readily available at the South Pole, unimaginable during my childhood when base staff felt lucky to send 40 words a month home by telex. Still, the idea that Antarctica is isolated to the extent it was a century ago persists. I don't know whether this is a romantic hankering for the isolation of the heroic age, or a convenient rationalisation for behaving as though operating in a vacuum, untouched by social or political consequences, but I've seen it trip some people up pretty badly. Cheating on a partner expecting fealty from you, with someone sharing ice time with you, and then discussing it with others... Might not have thrown a spanner in your works 20 years ago, but the communications available to Antarcticans today can make the spanner thrown in the works a size 48 Stilson. In terms of privacy, let alone secrecy, Antarctica is now the same as anywhere else. If you want something kept private, keep it to yourself. If you want something kept secret, you're an arsehole by definition because you're seeking to keep information from people who deserve to know it but you can't rely on the continent to do your covering up for you. I know someone who openly bragged about receiving oral sex in Scott's Discovery Hut until it became clear that management frowned upon such behaviour, but the rumour mill already got word home to their partner. I don't know or care how that situation played out, but the fact that the news got home within a matter of hours after the act should have seen the person in question become more circumspect in their vow-breaking. But dumbass gonna dumb, I guess and the bragging continued, albeit featuring less historically sensitive settings. Several biographies of the leaders of expeditions covered in this series delve deep into the private lives of the people in question. For a biography of a person, seeking to cover as much of the goings-on as possible, and thereby offer some perspective on what made that person tick the way they did, I guess that's valid. But for the most part, I don't see much mileage for such insights in this series. Who was knocking boots with whom, who cut whose lunch, and who cut out the whips and chains might be interesting in a tabloid newspaper sense, or even titillating if enough details come to light, but it's largely irrelevant to explaining why anyone went south and how they acted once there. Roald Amundsen's love life holds some parallels to his explorations, but even there I think it's a stretch to make much of the matter, and I'm not going to go into details because I don't care. What happens between consenting adults is none of my business any more than what happens on that front in my life is business of anyone else. Where I'll make an exception is when someone's love life drove their Antarctic ambitions or otherwise factored into the narrative behind our understanding of the continent and Lincoln Ellsworth's suspected suppressed homosexuality will feature in a coming episode albeit as brief mentions because it had some bearing on what he did and why. Did Explorer X Cut Explorer Y's lunch shortly after becoming engaged to W? I've heard rumours, but don't care enough about what happens in other people's marriages to investigate further, or to speculate on what I already know. Did Explorer A get creepy in his old age and send nudes to his teenage obsession? Yes, but that's not pertinent in terms of telling the story of his contribution to polar exploration. Was the male-only bastion that was early Antarctic exploration and station life a hotbed of gay sex? Probably, but who cares? Puritanical theocrats and slavering gossip hounds? That's who cares. And I don't have any time for either party, and the set intersect makes me want to see religions pay taxes. If you want to know this stuff, you can read the biographies. If that literature doesn't sate your hunger for prurience, you can always make the saucy details up for your own salacious contemplation. Or there's porn, if your imagination fails you, though I'm not aware of any polar exploration-themed erotica. I'm sure someone will let me know if that's a genre, and I won't be surprised or interested. Rule 34 and all that. I'm not a prude, and I think my love of prurient punnery demonstrates base matters on base aren't below my base, but I don't actually care about which consenting adults fuck or how. That said, no one should expect me to keep their secrets. Unless I've signed a non-disclosure agreement, I'm not obliged to protect anyone's relationship or business dealings or hide anyone's crimes. Moving on to matters of climate change. Climate change has been a dominating theme in my career, my teaching, my public speaking, and discourse with family and friends. This series works towards giving the topic a thorough examination, but I need the groundwork laid pretty well before I get to it. In recent weeks, Greta Thunberg has been getting a lot of stick for speaking truth to power. She's courageous and inspiring and on point, and we should amplify her message and watch her back for the slings and arrows of misogyny and fossil fuel magnates. What we shouldn't do is think of her as the one neat trick that will solve the problem. Firebrands seeking action on climate change have come and gone, and the problem is still with us. It's not on a 16-year-old Swede to solve it. It's on us. All of us. With our anger at corporate and political indolence, with our votes, with our consumer choices, and with our lifestyles and life decisions. That's the part that sticks in a lot of people's craws. But finding something distasteful doesn't make it untrue. To say that the actions of a single person don't make a difference is factually incorrect on its face, and to throw your hands in the air and say, my life can't change, is a cop-out that I don't buy. I wrote the following on the request of an artist friend who wanted a scientific perspective on how and why people haven't heeded the facts of climate change. I titled my essay Three decades of crushing disappointment and it served as the introduction to the exhibition not waving drowning. It's three decades since I first read articles in the scientific literature about climate change. I'm sure I could trace scientific concern about the changes our industries and farming practices made to the atmosphere back further than that and I found an article by Balkan from 1972 in which he recounts changes in the Arctic ice cover which he attributes to rising temperatures. And while he doesn't mention the Industrial Revolution and its knock-on effects, the facts of the matter were getting noticed a long time ago. But it's three decades since the issue first came on my radar, at around age 15, reading the literature my father brought home from his job at the CSIRO. At the time, concern focused on a potential problem for future generations, but each year since then, More and more papers recounting the predicted outcomes turned up in that literature. Scientists alerted to look for climate change found the evidence. Looking at historical images of Antarctic mountains and penguin rookeries, I can see changes over the last century as glaciers recede and species distributions change in response to rising sea surface temperatures and the knock-on effects this has on prey such as krill but I don't have to look that far afield to see climate change has been our present for several decades and not just the future of our descendants. A golf course closes as 50-year flooding events become five-year flooding events. Firefighters plan around dramatic decreases in return times for catastrophic bushfires. The East Australian current extends further south year by year and marine species unseen in our waters before are turning up in concert with that shift it's not hypothetical. A changing climate is our reality. So what happened? Why didn't the articles published 30 years ago convince more people that climate change poses a real threat to our collective well-being? Why has it taken so long to get people to recognize the problem we face? The scientific approach to finding answers that go beyond guesses and estimates has a demonstrated track record of getting results that no other branch of human activity can boast. Art didn't eradicate smallpox. Philosophy didn't propel people to the moon. Religion is demonstrably bad at birth control. The toolbox science gives humanity can provide us with solutions to practical problems. It once held a lot of respect because it increased agricultural outputs, took us across oceans with increasing speed and comfort, and brought an end to the deaths, injuries, and iron lungs associated with polio epidemics. I'm not sure when it lost that respect. I haven't measured and tested what made people turn a blind eye to the accumulating evidence that our climate is changing, let alone that our actions are the cause. I have some ideas that would inform any study I started to examine that matter based on discussions I've had about climate change over three decades. If validated by evidence, those ideas could hold some explanatory power, so I'll couch my thoughts about our slow response to a big problem in terms of those discussions. Many people initially claimed that humanity was too small to affect significant change on something as big as the atmosphere. There are two misconceptions at play in that stance. The first is that the atmosphere is big. It's not. It's a thin smear of gas on the big ball of rock it surrounds. This is where a scientific approach is so valuable. It removes personal experience, perceptions and cultural biases from a situation and deals with what's actually going on. People think the atmosphere is big because we can't reach the top of it, even standing on tippy-toe, but it's only a hundred kilometres thick and all the interesting stuff happens in the first ten kilometres where it's most dense and where we live. That's not big if you think how far we travel to work, to see loved ones and to go on holiday. The second misconception is that humanity is small. We're not. We're more numerous than any other large animal. We send species extinct accidentally, just trying to sustain ourselves. In the 19th century, men in wooden ships powered by sails nearly sent fur seals extinct for fashion's sake in a matter of two decades. We are a big species with big environmental impacts, even when we're not trying. People also regularly mixed up climate change and the hole in the ozone layer which received similar attention in the scientific literature at about the same time I started seeing articles about greenhouse gases. Both problems arise from human activities impacting on our atmosphere, but where climate change results from our energy production, industrial processes, farming practices and forestry back to the mid-18th century, the hole in the ozone layer was caused by a small number of chemicals invented and applied in the 20th century. After recognising the problem, identifying the cause and finding alternatives, we stopped making the hole in the ozone layer worse. Slowing our production of greenhouse gases is a much bigger problem because we inherited very heavy carbon boots from previous generations. Almost every aspect of a western lifestyle relies on large applications of fossil fuels, industrial processes and intensive farming. So disentangling ourselves from the causes of climate change is a far bigger deal than changing what gases go into our refrigerators. Even people who profess flexibility and open-mindedness resist substantial changes imposed on their lives by outside influences, so there was a big mental incentive to resist the idea that the climate was changing at all. For a long time, any evidence scientists pointed to was written off as noise in the data. People with a financial incentive to maintain the status quo applied the methods used by the tobacco industry to sow doubt about study results and politicians and industries ran with that rhetoric. A lot of people did. Things gradually changed when the sheer volume of data showing the climate is changing became impossible to ignore. Doubt no longer served as a means to stick fingers in ears regarding change so the rhetoric shifted to doubting the cause. Correlation isn't causation, is a central tenet of scientific investigation, but it became the catch-cry of former climate change deniers. No longer able to deny the climate is changing, they began denying the changes are anything to do with humanity. Science doesn't deal in absolute certainty, but in probabilities and likelihoods. There's always scope to deny given cause and effect are linked, but the cost of getting our ideas about climate change wrong are millions of people dying in floods and droughts because we're too dim-witted or too selfish to try to prevent them. We don't need certainty to justify being concerned at that scale, only a non-zero likelihood. Climate change is our present. If you don't believe me, I encourage you to speak to a property insurance industry statistician. They're taking climate change effects on sea levels deadly seriously because they make their money accurately understanding the probabilities some climate change deniers have made a living deliberately misinterpreting. It's not just scientists making noise about this anymore. It's firefighters and golf course boards of directors and insurance agents and peoples whose nations are slipping beneath the waves. Following goings-on on on an Antarctic-related Facebook page, I saw a lot of people using their ice time to piss on the experiences of people with less experience than themselves, who in turn pissed on the tourists who they said had no right to be there. I've mentioned this in passing in the past and I've lectured extensively on the matter on the ships. Everyone in Antarctica is a tourist. There's some science carried out in Antarctica that can't be done anywhere else but there's more that could be automated or remote sensed and still more that doesn't call for our immediate attention. Research stations are national footprints and often require a disproportionate government outlay in light of the returns, simply so a nation has people or structures on the ground. Research stations have polluted their environs with sewage, plastics, unwanted vehicles, decommissioned stations and nuclear waste, to an extent the tourism industry would have to spend a century operating very fast and loose to match. So seeing base personnel get uppity about carbon footprints gets my goat. Some people go there, slog their guts out at difficult or dangerous jobs for low pay, get to know the landscape and the weather and appreciate both at levels well beyond my ken, but their role in the big picture is as a self-propelling placeholder for territorial interests should anyone start drilling or digging in spite of the Antarctic Treaty. They are career tourists in a place that would be better left alone entirely. We are humanity though, so leaving Antarctica alone is outside our wheelhouse. We will go there because we are curious. We are also avaricious, greedy for esteem and experiences and resources. Until we turn another corner in social development equivalent to the Renaissance, the Enlightenment and making fire all rolled into one, we'll likely continue going there. I respect people who make Antarctica their career, but I don't respect them turning on others and making their experience a token in a game of who's an Antarctican. I want everyone on the planet to value that continent, whether they've been there or not, and I can't reach that goal if I get uppity about who's allowed to think they have a stake in the place compared to me. I finished this missive with the I'm happy to take notes on my thoughts, but don't be surprised if poorly thought-out rebuttals get turned into grist for the podcasting mill. It's not on me to protect anyone's reputation from their own spoutings. The post got a lot of positive feedback, It got me blocked from a few people, but there was a couple of folks that took me to task in fairly ineffectual ways, and true to my word, I've turned their posts into podcasting grist. Ed Matheson came out with the phrase, As the world's preeminent superpower, he's talking about the USA, I'm not sure we really need a placeholder there. I think we are keeping some law and order to what could have become a chaotic situation. I responded by quoting my favourite bending robot, and since I can't do the voice, I'll hand over to Bender. (laughs) Oh wait, you're serious? Let me laugh even harder. (laughs) Relating back to climate change, here's an interview I recorded in 2005 for Radio Tuna. I'm speaking to Tim Naish, who's the leader of the New Zealand contingent of Andrill in Antarctica in 2005. What exactly is Andrill, Tim?
1: is an uh, international effort to recover records of the history of the Antarctic ice sheet by using a drill rig to drill the sediments of the sea, below the seafloor around the Antarctic continent. These these sediments have accumulated in basins that um, record a very detailed history of how the ice sheet has behaved through the past and through past warm periods. And what we really hope to do with the ANGEL project is to establish the fundamental behaviour of the Antarctic ice sheet and how it influences our climate, how it has influenced our climate in the past, and how it potentially will behave in the future as we enter a scenario of global warming.
0: And to do that, you have to set these big drilling rigs up on ice that's floating on, on the sea, essentially.
1: Yeah, it's, um, it's pretty cool technology, it's quite, it's quite innovative, and it's New Zealand developed over the last 20 or 30 years. So yeah, the idea is that we, we take a, a pretty standard minerals industry drill rig, but we modify it to sit it on seasonal sea ice and on the ice shelf and use that as a platform from which we can get access to these sediments. The reason we have to do that and we can't drill on land is because Antarctica's has had an ice sheet for about 30 million years and that ice sheet has fairly much eroded all the sediments that tell that story off the continent and washed them, if you like, into the basins next to the continent. And the only way for us to get access to them is to put these drill rigs on the ice platforms that are plentiful around the Antarctic margin. And
0: how thick is the ice that you're actually setting all of this technology?
1: Well, yeah, it's uh, distressingly thin in places. So um, the sea ice is seasonal and it it can get up to several metres thick. The minimum amount or thickness of sea ice we can deal with is two metres. So we're going to put potentially an 80 tonne load on two metres of sea ice and we're going to drill in a thousand metres of water and drill to over a kilometre below the sea floor. That's pretty impressive. Yeah. How far along is the program now? It's getting, it's getting close. It's almost D-Day for us. We've been developing it for the last five years, following on from a successful Kate Roberts project. And um, next year is our, is, our, is our first year. So in, the, in October 2006, we will be setting up to drill on the Ross Ice Shelf. And that will bring together about 100 scientists from around the world. 35 of them will be actually down on the ice. There'll be a drilling team of about 25. And fingers crossed, it'll all go well. And we'll get these records we're after. So this
0: is one of the larger projects going on in the Antarctic at the moment?
1: I, I would say so. There's some pretty big projects going on in the Antarctic. But as far as uh, drilling goes, this this is a big one. It uh, combines the resources of four nations, the USA, Germany, Italy and New Zealand, and has a operational budget of ten million US dollars over the next two years. And if you add in all the science, it's about a thirty million US project.
0: And I've noticed working down here that most of the scientific um, community takes climate change for granted, and that's the basis of your very large project here. Um, Back in New Zealand, people seem a bit less certain about it. Um, Can you sort of outline to our listeners what convinces you and why people here are so so adamant that climate change is occurring?
1: Yeah, it's always a tricky one. Um, Down here, we're with scientists, and the majority of the scientific community... I shouldn't say majority, almost all the scientific community globally, who are involved in climate change research, appreciate and understand that greenhouse gases in our atmosphere have been, have been increasing at an unprecedented rate. We haven't seen that before in the natural world. So the idea that greenhouse gases are warming the atmosphere is really now an incontrovertible fact. Where there is some uncertainty, and I think this is where um, the public are unsure, is what are the likely consequences of that warming going to be? How quickly are the ice sheets going to melt, if you like, and sea level rise? Um, can we expect more tropical cyclones, hurricanes? Can we expect more heat waves in Europe? If we get a heat wave in Europe, is that global warming? And so these are the questions I think cause a bit of con- confusion. Um, and and that is exactly why the Angel program is doing what it's doing, because one of the big question marks in future climate change is how will the Antarctic continent behave in a scenario of a warming world? And to get a handle on that, we can go back into the past and find times when the world was warmer, potentially as warm as it will be by the end of this century, and uh, hopefully answer some of those questions and get a better handle on where we're heading in the future.
0: Any, any sort of vague guesses at the moment, or you're not going to put your finger
1: on that? Uh, <laughs> um, look, there's certainly some anecdotal evidence and some, and some reasonably good scientific evidence to suggest that the Ross Ice Shelf, for example, has collapsed in the past when, when the Earth has been 2 to 3 degrees warmer than it currently is. And these are the sort of temperatures we're facing with global warming in the next 100 years. We've already seen the spectacular collapse of the Larsen B Ice Shelf, Um, In 2002, within a few months, an enormous chunk just collapsed because of the heating around the Antarctic Peninsula. How fast sea level will rise, how quickly the ice sheets will retreat, both on Greenland and Antarctica, um, I wouldn't like to speculate. The current school of thought is saying about a metre. We can expect about a metre of sea level rise. Um, at the most, in the next hundred years.
0: But that's not just going to mean that some areas get submerged. There's also going to be associated climate change related to that. There'll be um, changes in the Southern Oscillation, I guess. And
1: a- a- absolutely. I mean, the the, the climate system's is a really complex beast, and um, it, in our part of the world, we're so dependent on on the behaviour of the Southern Ocean and what what Antarctica will do. Certainly um the re the 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 new zealand science community have been predicting for new zealand over the next 50 years an increase in il nino type weather conditions so wetter in the west drier in the east basically the mantra is warmer and wetter Um, so potentially more flooding and heavy rainfall events on the west coast sort of like the manawatu floods we had in february several years ago Um, yeah, so these sort of uh, more short-term climatic phenomenon um, are, predi- are being predicted and are, th- are a consequence of, of global warming. <laughs> you might have to hear one of it. <laughs>
0: well, it sounds like Andrew's doing really valuable work. Thanks for speaking to Radio Tuna today. No worries. Greetings this episode to Warren and Kirsty and Monty, whose company I enjoy immensely. Take care and appreciate your coffee.